Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, and welcome to the Banker Midweek. And this week, your editors are myself, Liz Lumley, and my good friend, Virginie O'Shea. Hello, Virginie. Hi, Liz. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience, which, of course, you are someone who needs no introduction, but just for those who don't know you, please tell us who you are. (laughs) Sure, no problem. Um, As Liz mentioned, I'm Virginia Shea. I'm the founder of a research advisory business uh, called Firebrand Research that focuses on capital markets, technology, and operations. And I've been doing that for about three and a bit years. And before that, I was an analyst for quite a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So as our listeners know, the Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future stories. So we're going to start with a story I never want to hear about ever again, but it is what Kimberly Long commented last week on the podcast as the story that will not die. Um, And this is the drama around uh, people being denied bank accounts in the UK. And I really think this is a, a two-pronged story. And I don't want to go into a huge amount that we went into last week. So this was kind of started with, uh, for those who don't know, a Brexit campaigner, Nigel Farage, who uh, cried foul at being denied a bank account at Coots, which is a private bank that caters to the ultra-wealthy. When we recorded the podcast last week, um, Alison Rose, the CEO of NatWest, the owners of Coots, and Peter, Peter Flavel, CEO of, of Coots, had not resigned over this uh, drama. However, they have now resigned. So we're not going to go through that again, but uh, there are two things I wanted to talk about. And uh, when I was coming into work last week, uh, it was announced on the radio that Alison Rose had resigned from NatWest. Um, and I was like, oh, damn it. And uh, so I, I wrote I wrote a blog, which um, the response to it kind of highlights something that I think is a bit odd about this story. And um, I'm going to get to you, Virginie, for, for some comment on this. And then we can talk about people being denied bank accounts later. Um, mm-hmm. But um, so Alison Rose is, is, uh, is, is a female CEO of a, of a major national bank. Um, she did uh, talk to a BBC journalist about uh, someone's uh, uh, personal bank account details, which was an unethical thing to do and the wrong thing to do. Um, and because of that, she did she did resign. And that, that's not something that I am um, uh, commenting on. But to lose a female CEO of such a high profile when that club is so small is is felt. And it's 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 kind of sad and it seems so overwrought and disturbing. Um, But of course, most of the commentary from social media post reply guys are, well, she did do a bad thing. And I'm like, well, no one's, no one's disputing that, (laughs) you know, talking about someone's personal bank account details was the wrong thing to do. Um, But you can still sort of think "Mm, this is a loss to the industry. Um, to lose such a high-profile um, uh, leader, and also a leader that Nat, Nat West used to be, you know, came from the from the ashes of Royal Bank of Scotland. It used to be eighty percent owned by the UK taxpayer after the bailout of the crisis. It's now thirty-nine percent owned by the UK taxpayer. A lot of that recovery was under the leadership of of Alison Rose, um, and I I'm sad that that's going to be kind of forgotten about. So I don't I don't know what what your what your thoughts on this whole 
drama is, Virginie? What, what do you think? I don't know. Well, representation matters, doesn't mm. it? I mean, uh, no more so than um, CEOs of banks, <laughs> because obviously we're, there's few and far between females out there. Uh, yeah. And certainly, yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's quite sad to see it. I, yeah, as you say, I can understand why she had to take that step, although people have not resigned over less. Yes, <laughs> yes, true, fair, right? true. There's, been, there's a lot of scandals that have happened across some of the large US banks, for example, over the re recent years, and we have not seen those CEOs resign. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's an interesting, you know, I, I guess she wasn't the only one uh, yes. in this particular instance. And it, it's an interesting thing to see such furore over something so trivial, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> when you actually look into the details of it, I'm sure you probably discussed this in the last podcast, but I mean, they weren't wrong to deny the bank account. I mean, yeah. to be fair. So, I mean, it, all this storm in a teacup seems, seems somewhat overwrought. I mean, I have had conversations with people, you know, upset that uh, Mr. Farage was denied a bank account at a government-owned, you know, bank of which NatWest is. But I said, you know, you, this is, you got to look at the details. This is Coote's bank. He mm -hmm. was not upset that he was denied a NatWest account, which he was eventually offered a NatWest account. He was upset. I, I'm getting into it. I told myself I wasn't going to. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he wanted the, the, the name, the status symbol that, that comes with Coots and his um, little man ego was... Um, was nine. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking about it because I'm going to move on to <laughs> just but still the story, but still other aspects of the story. Just some good news on the female club CEOs. Uh, BT has announced uh, that Alison Kirby is, will be the next chief executive of the telecoms company. I know it's not necessarily financial services related, but it seems like Allison is the female CEO name <laughs> of the 21st century, um, but yeah. So we will we will have uh, we'll have we'll have more women in leadership positions. But and this is why another issue. And I had an argument with someone just recently about this. Um, banks are closing people's accounts. So let's take let's take Mr. Farage, who is a who is a, a controversial and 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 a politically polarizing figure, out of the equation for a second. Um, you know, when I was managing director of Startup Bootcamp, which was a startup accelerator for fintech companies, the most difficult thing we had was getting bank accounts for our startups. And we had one startup mm -hmm. that was that was based in Russia. I mean, well, they were based in London, but they came from Russia. And the banks, all the UK banks said, nope, we have no appetite for this business. And there are people who are erroneously being denied bank accounts. They are they're usually uh, immigrants. They're usually the poor. Um, I, I've written extensively about when I first moved to this country 26 years ago. I had a lot of difficulty opening up a high street bank. So there is a discussion to be had about the levels of risk banks are willing to take on and whether they're being a bit too heavy handed and not transparent enough Um for 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 the, the the customer segment, so I mean I mean it, 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 what what pisses me off is that it gets roped in with someone who I'm I'm fair to say that you and I don't share political views with, but there is another issue to be talked about about whether or not banks need to really look at um, treating customers a bit more fairly, even those that they choose not to do business with. What do you think? Sure. I mean, well, consumer duty is coming in this week, right? Yes, so um, yes. that's that's a big area <laughs> that should maybe add some balance uh, mm. with regards to, to making sure that people do get treated fairly, especially on the retail side of things, because that's all about the retail customer, right? So mm. 
Certainly, I think there's a fine line, though, because there are challenges in terms of KYC and AML, and you see the, the, the fines that firms get on the side of, you know, if, if you fall foul of, of KYC um, over recent years, yeah. those those fines have got higher and higher and higher. So that kind of incentivizes um, banks not to take on clients that might be high risk, uh, to be fair. So I, I think that's a, it's a challenge. Um, I, I don't know that we've, we've got the right balance at the moment. Right. I can understand, obviously, there's a lot of issues with regards to where people are from, where they're located, uh, the, especially on the business bank account side of things. Um, mm. That can be very, very challenging. I mean, on the retail side, it should be easier. It shouldn't be as difficult as it is. Exactly. Um, I mean, I, I think on the, you know, the unbanked side, we should be encouraging people into the banking system, not deterring them from it. So <laughs> certainly that's very important. But on the business side, I can understand why people are hesitant to take on entities that may represent right. a threat because, yeah, you don't want to fall foul of the regulator. And now that we have ESG scores for banks that uh, fall foul of the regulator, then you could have your share price. Ooh, we're we're going to get to that soon. But um, I just yep. wanted to mention a story um, that is on the site now, which is written by our European editor, Anita Hauser. And this is around this issue of why do banks close accounts and how does it impact customers? And she talked to UK discrimination lawyer, uh, Sharuk Kasari. Um, and Kasari says uh, he has represented a lot of people of Iranian heritage who live and work in the UK and pay taxes here and whose accounts have been closed for no reason. He says banks rarely give a reason for closing an account, or if they do, it's very opaque. Usually it takes litigation or the threat of litigation for them to give a reason. I think, as you mentioned, the Consumer Duty um, Act, that will probably change very soon. Fingers crossed. Fingers, Fingers crossed. crossed. <laughs> That's certainly certainly one of the angles of it is to make sure that people are treated fairly and, you know, mm. across the board, no matter where you're from or what you do, right? Exactly. That should be the case. Well, I wanted to talk about something fun now before we go into ESG <laughs> because <laughs> sure. you are very well known for um, your uh, memes on social media um, and your tiny cloth figurines. I have uh, my personal website has a picture of your um, Bitcoin on a blockchain, little little mm -hmm. cloth figurines, which I still have in my house. Um, but you now have a series uh, looking at the little miss, Mr. Men um, uh, <laughs> people and calling them things like little Miss Micah and little Miss Legacy Infrastructure, which I wanted to I wanted you to talk me through those. <laughs> I think, well, part of part of my job is educating people about, um, you know, my clients, uh, the market at large, about what's going on in financial services and capital markets in particular. And a lot of it can be very dry content, <laughs> dare I say. So no. try to add a little bit of fun or <laughs> inject something um, in, into it that sort of brings it to life, I think, is helpful. Mm. Um, you know, when, when I'm talking about something, I, I put up da Little Miss Data Silo, I think, earlier this week. And, and, and Data Silos, everyone has them. Yeah. But we, I mean, you've got to think about like how how um, they might sort of impact your firm. But you can you can look at it from the perspective of a children's book. <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> how did you get the fun. How, how did you get the 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 rights to to use the images? Uh, they are freely use, usable as long as you reference oh. the author, I believe. Oh, cool. So, uh, oh, that's, that's what we try and stick by. Yeah. Good to know. Lovely. All right. As we promised, we're going to talk a little bit about ESG. Uh, so there's a story on the banker site talking about for the UK to lead on ESG regulation, it must think globally. And the uh, we're staying in the UK still. The HM Treasury, Treasury is considering regulation on ESG ratings. The UK can demonstrate leadership and strength and strengthen Martin cl uh, market clarity, but it is critical that a global market is considered, writes Pietro Bertazzi. So 
ESG is a is a huge topic for us and in, in our audience, um, but it is getting um, it it has it has it has its its detractors. We're seeing we're seeing globally mm-hmm. not 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 too much. Uh, you know, we can see one side the e part of it, environmental. There's a lot of greenwashing going on. I think the social aspect gets forgotten a bit. Of course, there's there's governance um, as well, which which very much uh, needs to be looked at. Um, but there was an article in the FT which I thought was interesting. Um, city investors putting UK security at risk over ESG, according to ministers. And this is about um, City of London investors who are refusing to back the arms industry um, and the defense industry during times of war, specifically the war in the Ukraine. In Ukraine, um, so it, it's an interesting pushback on on ESG measures going on from different from different areas. I mean, does this is this is this war going to continue over ESG, do you think? I think so. I mean, there's been a lot of debate over the last couple of years on the S aspect because that's where the sort of armaments bit comes into mm. it as to whether they, it's sort of in or out. <laughs> and there are two different schools of thought. Some say that armaments should be considered ESG investments because they're protecting and they're about you know, protecting individuals, they're protecting society. And others say, obviously, they can be used for violence and it can be destructive to society. So I see the, that there have been lots of arguments on both sides. It's This is one of the challenges with ESG is that, you know, you can sometimes, not always, <laughs> um, with some of these things, argue both ways. And, and we did spend, you know, the best part of three years in Europe arguing whether nuclear power was E or not. Um, and it finally got put into that bucket. So some of those, uh, the E aspects are also equally controversial. So... I would say um, we're going to have problems like this. There's not going to be global agreement ever on right. any of these topics. No. There's never um, a global agreement on anything. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. But these are specifically even more controversial. Mm. Um, and I think the UK has gone down the route of polarised discussion on it as well. Same as the US, where mm. people just can't have a civil conversation in the political arena on this topic, which is somewhat frustrating, I must admit. I know we have um, sort of governors of states banning ESG investments from the state, mm-hmm. which is... yep bizarre <laughs> it is it is indeed especially when you see that you know hurricanes are getting worse mm. particularly around the east stuff mm. in some of these states um and you know sea levels rising potentially that could be threatening to a lot of the real estate in those uh, in those states as well so interesting to mm-hmm. deny climate change but uh, that's that's where we are i think unfortunately well, the regulators are looking at it here in the UK. So we're mm-hmm. going to talk about another re- regulator now, one that you're very, very familiar with, Virginie, which is uh, ESMA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I noticed he posted this on LinkedIn a few days ago. ESMA recommends harmonized shareholder definitions in the latest SRD2 proposals. The report finds that almost all market participants said a common definition would be helpful in increasing efficiency throughout the custody chain. Why is this an important uh, an important recommendation, do you think? Um, I mean, well, SRD2 is probably not the most glamorous thing. It's, it's very much in the G of, of ESG. Mm. Uh, I think everyone tends to not think about the G bit, but it's where all of the important stuff tends to sit because it's how you enforce the E and the S. So essentially, with regards to this G bit, um, this is updating a, a directive that came out in 2020 um, that was very poorly implemented because it was during the pandemic. And uh, a lot of uh, challenges have been had cross-border. We've had so many discussions over the years about how um, cross-border definitions for specific things are different per country. So the way we define who who's the holder of a share 
in each individual country in Europe varies. So, um, which makes it somewhat difficult if you're trying to understand, you know, the end shareholder, their rights, responsibilities, their voting, which is what um, SRD2 is all about. It's all about proxy voting, shareholder voting. All about, you know, a lot much more engagement because of ESG. Shareholders want to vote um, for board diversity, things like that, you know, carbon um, carbon footprints uh, and changing net zero um, emissions and all of this kind of stuff. So um, having a single definition for shareholder across Europe would be very helpful. Um, I think Giovannini, uh, dare I reference him, pointed that <laughs> out about 20 something years ago <laughs> and we still haven't done anything about it. And this is finally moving in the direction to try and address one of those barriers um, to effective cross-border um, rights holding of shares. Mm -hmm. Fun stuff. God, this is this is regulation heavy as well, because we're going to the next <laughs> thing. Another one of my favorite things, which is the Basel three end game. Um, so the FT um, Alpha blog today said it's the most ambitious regulatory crossover event in banking history. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, and it said to pour one out because the uh, August will be ruined by the new bank capital rules proposed by a trio of U.S. regulators. Wall Streeters and other analyst lobbyists are piecing together the consequences of the thousand-plus-page proposal that constitutes the finale of the global regulatory response to the 2008-2009 financial crisis. It's about time. So the, let me read some um, some takeaways from the proposed rules from the, the proposed rules. So there could be an approximately 24% increase in risk-weighted risk weighted assets for the largest banks. Uh, the standardization of operational RWAs. In the past, the biggest banks had the option of calculating operational risk with internal models. This takes away the option in favor of more standard metrics. I remember the argument around operational risk back back in the, <laughs> the heady days of Basel II. Um, regulators also wanted to include cross-jurisdictional um, uh, uh, derivatives claims in their calculations of capital requirements at global systematically important banks, or at GSIB, uh, S1Bs. Uh, banks with more than $100 billion in assets will need to include, accumulate other comprehensive income uh, in regulatory capital calculations, though only starting in 2028. That means that some banks with unrealized losses in their available for-sale bond portfolios will now need to hold capital against losses. Now, it's it's very interesting. That's one of the last sort of takeaways from this. We'll now need to hold capital against losses because I remember the fights over Basel II were about what is the minimum amount of capital that we can hold mm -hmm. <laughs> and still be compliant with these regulations. And this was before the crash. Um, yep. What is What are your views about the end game with Basel III? I mean, the, the the title of it makes me laugh because it sounds like the <laughs> Avengers. But um, I must admit, in terms of um, looking at it from... Basel three Infinity War. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be a war here because mm. you've got so many banks fighting against mm. this at the moment. And that's why we didn't get Basel II in the US, right? So no. essentially, they skipped <laughs> what everyone else applied and now have suddenly come in uh, hard and fast with something that's even more onerous than the other, you know, the, the global proposals. So um, I think it's also related to obviously what's been happening in the US bank turmoil, mid-tier bank turmoil mm -hmm. this year. Um, it's interesting they're going harder on the GSIBs who weren't actually the ones that were in turmoil. It was all of the sort of mid-tier banks. Yeah. Um, who are now being encompassed in this with the, you know, the 11% increase in risk-weighted assets. 
right? That's a, so it will impact them, but it's not going. For some reason, it's being more punitive for the larger banks who already hold a fair amount of capital, um, and, and I think they're the ones that are going to be fighting it the most aggressively. Um, and, and obviously, the, the the Fed and the other bank regulators are, are pushing very hard on this. So I think it's going to be a, it could be an infinity war for, for some time. It won't be infinity. It will be a war <laughs> for the next. Uh, year or so but it's certainly going to be relatively painful to introduce and we do have to see some in some of it about i think about 80 percent of it has to be introduced by those banks by 2025 so it's not like it's going to be 2028 when all this happens it's actually happening relatively soon so at a time when we've got a lot of other changes going on regulatory wise in the us mm. you know not to mention t plus one but that's one of my yeah. other favorite topics yeah. but that's happening too <laughs> So, so um, there's a lot of regulatory change going on and it's a lot to take on, uh, particularly um, with regards to, you know, the cost of all of this. Um, if you're holding more capital, you're having to spend more on internal technology, it's going to be quite painful and banks are already struggling. So, you know, the, the long term negative impact on banking could could see some of the sort of mid tiers continue to disappear, yeah. which would be a bad thing. Um, although uh, I can do an upside here. Um, some banks will have... Um, you know, an upside because, uh, for example, the not all of the assets are being as heavily weighted. So mortgage-backed securities banks, I think Goldman Sachs is big in that that market. Mm -hmm. um, actually, their risk-weighted assets for all those assets is, is actually going to go down. So net-net, there's there's some positives. <laughs> it's not all negative, but yeah. largely it's it's going to be painful, I think. I mean, I always kind of looked at, if you look at the political aspect, you know, the, the mid-tier banks, I think, I'm not saying large-tier banks like Goldman Sachs don't have political pull, but mm -hmm. the mid-tier banks seem to, I think they they have a closer relationship with their local congressman, local senator type thing, which is, yeah. which has kind of helped them in the past. But, it, you know, this does seem there are a lot of people predicting an end to this, the mid-sized bank in the U.S. Mm -hmm. which, I mean, well, we're already seeing signs of it, right, with, mm -hmm. with the consolidation. Interesting. All right. Now, this is this is this is showing I love showing this last week. I showed my ignorance over um, um, paying my mobile phone. Um, I, I didn't know the name of it. But anyway, so this is Klarna. Klarna ditches open banking brand. And I think I saw this in, in Finextra yesterday. Um, so Klarna has not had a, a great uh, few years after it was uh, flavor of the month with buy now, pay later a few years ago. And it's, uh, it's now um, uh, uh, its valuation has gone down, and as the as the hype over buy now pay later has kind of uh, decreased globally, but this is um, Klarna has killed off its open banking brand, uh, Cosma, a little over a year after launch. Um, I didn't even know they had one. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> so something we did not know about is no longer around. <laughs> Poor Klana. I'm not. I feel bad, um, I, because I don't think I should be bullying them. But this is, yeah. So uh, Klarna first entered the open banking space when it acquired Sofort, a direct bank-to-bank -bank payment service in Germany, in 2014. Uh, since then, the Swedish giant has developed the service, expanding it into dozens of markets, and began to use open banking to power additional in-house services. Um, okay. Anyway, it's no longer around. Um, poor Klana. Wonderful. Brittany, I hope you feel better very soon. Thank you. And thank you thank very you. so much for joining joining us. My on, pleasure. Uh, and, I, and I hope you dream of T plus one. Oh, goodness. Then I always. <laughs> <laughs> Come back soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts, 
from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.